0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose the of you on the good earth. one. small step for man, one giant leap.
1: number 236 for thursday october 14th 2010 uh, my name is gene mcculka and i have on board the usual suspects good evening mark ratterman how you doing today
2: don't expect me to be sad it's been a great day and as long as the internet holds out we're gonna have a great time
1: in- indeed indeed and we're gonna be talking about that a little in another episode pretty soon there mark uh, good evening gina hurley how you doing doing today
3: i'm I'm great. I am so excited to talk to one of my favorite authors and
0: astronauts.
1: Yeah, same here, Gina. Same here. And good evening to you, sir, Sawyer Rosenstein. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. This is not an episode that I want to even start off with a joke because I think this one is going to be too great to ruin it with a bad joke in the
1: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, this is also, too, uh, an episode that I've been, I've been looking forward to since we've, uh, we've actually started this. Um, today, we are going to be talking to a very, very, very special guest, uh, Colonel Mike Mullane, uh, who was born on September 10th, 1945, in Wichita Falls, Texas, but uh, spent most of his youth in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he currently resides. Upon his graduation from West Point in 1967, he was commissioned in the U.S. Air Force as a weapons systems operator on, aboard a Phantom aircraft. He completed 134 combat missions in Vietnam. He holds a master's degree in aeronautical engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology and is also a graduate of the Air Force Flight Test Engineer School at Edwards Air Force Base in California. Mullane was selected as a, as a NASA mission specialist in, in 1978 among the first group of space shuttle astronauts. He completed three missions and logged 356 hours in space, serving as MS-1, on board the maiden flight of the shuttle Discovery, which was STS-41D, and was a mission specialist on board Shuttle Atlantis for the STS-27 and STS-36 missions, dedicated to the Department of Defense before retiring from NASA and the Air Force in 1990. Elaine is the author of several books, including Do Your Ears Pop in Space? and other surprising questions about space travel and his memoir, Writing Rockets, which is available in bookstores everywhere, um, as he is also a professional mo- uh, motivational speaker. Uh, Colonel Mullane has thrilled tens of thousands adult, of adults and half a million children with inspirational, motivational, numerous descriptions of the astronaut experience. And if you want to learn more about uh, Colonel Mullane, please visit his website at www.astronautmikemullane.com. Please welcome to Talking Space Colonel Mike Mullane. Mike, first off, uh, your book, Riding Rockets, I- incredible. In plain English, um, there's a, a set of, of uh, folks that sometimes I talk to, and um, I ask them, you know, they, they ask me, excuse me, um, if there's any books running around that I could recommend um, that would tell us me about uh, tell them about the early uh, shuttle program and and what it was like to be an astronaut. And yours is the first one that that comes to mind. And um, what was what was the impetus to 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 write the book and, and book to begin with? Um, was it just something that you felt had to get out there, and, and you just needed this story to be told, or, or what, what was what was the really mechanics of getting this out?
4: Well, it's probably you know a combination of things. Uh, I, I I liked writing. Uh, I had a story that I thought would be pretty interesting to tell folks, and I, and actually I wanted to tell it to myself. I, I you know I thought you know how did I get here? You know where did I start from? How did I get here? So. That was part of it, and uh, also I wanted to give tribute to the heroes of my life, and those certainly began with my parents. I talk about them in the book. My mom and dad dealing with the polio that my dad had that crippled him for life, uh, and their reaction to it—it's certainly heroic. And my wife Donna. Um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be an astronaut but for the fact that she took a huge gamble and kissed me. <laughs> <laughs> 43 years later, we're we're still married, which is a a miracle. But uh, it was a a combination of of, of factors. But uh, I think that kind of summarizes it. I liked writing. I think it was a story. I had an interesting life and wanted to tell it. But I wanted to tell it to myself as much as anybody else. uh, Explain to myself how it happened. that I went from who I was to being an astronaut, uh, give tribute to my parents and, and to my wife.
1: I mean, it, it certainly runs the gamut of emotions. I mean, there there are moments in here where it's it's laugh out loud, you know, wake the neighbors, funny, and there are moments here where you know, when I, whenever I I recommend people, they buy it. They have like at least two tissue boxes on their nightstand because you're going to need them, and you you really you you really write exquisitely well. Um, uh, it's just, I mean, it's just an amazing amazing tale. Um, well.
4: Thank you very much. Authors love to hear this. By the way. <laughs>
1: I mean that sincerely. I mean, I, I couldn't, you know, when I first read this, when it first came out, it, I I couldn't put it down in plain English. So it was uh, it was an amazing read. Um, as far as uh, the shuttle program itself, as we know, we're we're looking at the, you know, your your first ride, Discovery. It's sitting out there on the pad right now for the last time. Um, you were you were kind of excited to get. On on uh, on that bird for the first ride, correct? It was just something that uh, you know had never been done before.
4: Uh, excitement isn't the uh, proper adjective. Uh, I I was um, well. I mean, there's no no way really describing the thrill of being assigned to a mission and being assigned to the first flight of any vehicle, and certainly a space shuttle was a uh, was an extra <laughs> added thrill times ten. Uh, but I I mean I was weightless when I was told that I was going to fly on that flight I'm, I wasn't in space yet but I was already already weightless and uh, we went through a lot of agony before it happened and I kept worried that it was going to be jerked from us because of the delays but uh, it all came together and and we did get the. Uh, I got to be a part of the crew of the first shuttle launch of the first uh, launch of discovery and uh, it, it is a highlight of my life no doubt about it
1: what what was the, the the one moment that you can bring away from like the training aspects of, of getting ready to fly on 41D?
4: Well, that that's tough. I I mean, there's countless memorable moments. Uh, I think probably the most memorable memorable would be on my very first um, uh, training session in the integrated in the shuttle in the shuttle simulator. We had Two shuttle simulators. Uh, we had a motion base, which was on six hydraulic legs that would tilt, uh, inside the cockpit. It was exactly like a shuttle. Um, and you'd strap into it. It would tilt back to simulate your vertical on the pad. It wasn't be, it wouldn't be completely vertical because as you launched, it would get more vertical to simulate the g forces rising in your body. And, um, and all of the indications you had on the instruments were exactly as if you were flying into space. And I, I remember the first time I did it, I this, this this is incredible. The idea that I am training to actually do this for real. And by the way, it was, I think that was the first, and uh, well, is it one of two simulations where there were absolutely no malfunctions. It was a launch where everything worked the way it was supposed to in the simulator, and we ended up in orbit. Uh, the rest of them, and there were, I mean, thousands of hours in them, uh beyond that that never occurred it was always malfunction after malfunction you'd lift off you'd have three seconds in you would have a hydraulic failure a minute in you would have an engine failure a minute and a half up you would have a a cabin pressure leak then you would have a, a reaction control system leak and it was just nonstop emergencies that you're responding to uh and the other crew members are responding to and you did that for thousands of hours and then the next time that you saw a nominal launch was the very last simulation before you went to launch. They wanted to leave you with a sense of what hopefully you were going to see in in a week or two. So uh, (laughs) the very first one has to be the most memorable, is being in a simulator that was exactly like a space shuttle and uh, riding into simulated orbit.
0: Along those lines, when it came down to the first launch attempt, you're sitting on the pad with the crew, the countdown's going, you get to 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and then the ground launch sequencer aborts the launch because of a leak. What was first the initial reaction in the cabin with the crew, and then once everything was safed, what was your reaction afterwards?
4: Well, actually, it was uh, beyond six seconds. The engine started. It was down. It got down to about three, three seconds. Um, uh, you're talking about the pad aboard on 41D, correct? Yes. Where where the engine start? Yeah. It, it uh, Well, I remember I remember sitting on the launch pad and uh, scared. Anybody that says they're not scared out there is either lying or incredibly naive. Um, but uh, I remember thinking uh, when we got down to those final seconds, uh, eight, seven, six, main engine start, and I remember thinking, well, whatever happens, I'm going now five four three and then quiet except for the alarm going off in the cockpit to tell us that uh um that the engines all shut off we we the engine started at uh six seconds t minus six seconds and then shut off at t minus three seconds uh because of a of a valve problem on one of the engines and uh i'll tell you that people ask me what's the scariest moment of my life that was it um it was uh kind of took us by surprise we had practiced what they call a a uh, RTL, uh, a, uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's a pad abort, but there's a technical term for it and it slips my mind right now. But um, the the uh, abort, that's what it was, redundant set launch sequencer abort. And uh, it kind of took us by surprise. We had seen that in our training uh, weeks earlier, but a uh, month earlier probably, it just wasn't in the forefront of our brains that this was gonna happen. So it kind of took us by surprise. Uh, Then the ground reported seeing a small fire uh, on the launch pad. Not on the vehicle, but on the launch pad. Uh, Some uh, hydrogen was burning, and it ignited uh, some insulation on the launch pad near the vehicle. Uh, Well, let me tell you, when you're sitting on 4 million pounds of propellant, there's no such thing as a small fire. And uh, that really got our attention. Then they turned on the uh, fire suppression system that was spraying the cockpit and the vehicle. And we were thinking we were going to have to do an emergency uh, egress, an emergency escape and jump in the slide baskets and, and get away. We were, that's what we were thinking in the cockpit. And that didn't happen, but uh, it, was, uh, it was scary in that cockpit. I do recall Steve Hawley, this mission specialist who was on my left um, in the center seat behind the pilots. Uh, I remember looking over at him. Uh, and his eyes were as big as saucers and those were my, that was a mirror. I was looking into a mirror. That was my face. And I remember him looking at me and say, gosh, I thought we'd be higher when the engines quit. I wanted to hit the guy. There was nothing, nothing funny about this, Holly, but uh, he, he, he maintained a sense of humor, even in this very, very scary moment on that launch pad. I'll, I'll shut up here and let you guys ask some more questions here.
2: Mike, this is Mark Ratterman. I got a question uh, from when you started your training as a mission specialist in 78. I know you got to know some of the astronauts that flew Apollo and, and probably some of the earlier missions perhaps. Um, if you had a choice to fly a space capsule or the shuttle, would you like the chance to fly in a, a space capsule or, or stick with the shuttle?
4: If I could have walked on the moon, I would have gone on the capsule. But if you're just talking about like a Skylab mission or Apollo Soyuz or uh, early one of the early uh, Mercury, Gemini type of programs, one of the early Apollo launches where they weren't going to the moon, then I would absolutely want to fly on a shuttle. Uh, the shuttle is uh, certainly, uh, you have more of a sense of being in a real spacecraft as a, a rocket ship that's, got wings it comes back hypersonic and lands on wheels instead of dropping into the water and more importantly probably is it has incredible views from it it has uh windows on the top uh, in the in the back of the cockpit and in the front and you have these incredible views from those windows and you're not in a pressure suit you're floating around and just uh basically you know gym, gym shorts and a cotton t-shirt and uh It's very comfortable compared to what those pioneering early astronauts face in those castles.
3: Mike, I've read your book twice. I've laughed, I cried, and as a woman, I definitely um, took notice of the three profound female influences in your life, and that would, of course, be your wife Donna, your mother, and your very dear friend Judy Reddick. Now, I guess my question is sort of two parts. Um, now that, you you know, your mom and Judy have deceased, how do they still guide you today, years after your astronaut career has ended? Um, they were such strong influences and I think taught you a lot about yourself. Do they still have a profound influence on you, um, today as you tour and speak and, and and climb mountains? (laughs)
4: Well, I... I would, I mean, clearly, my mom has been preeminent influence on my life, followed by my wife, and certainly Judy uh, had a had a profound influence too. But my mom, uh, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but looking back on it, realized that her strength, particularly in the face of incredible adversity, uh, dealing with my dad's polio um had a an effect on me on on tenacity in pursuit of goals, and uh that served me well in life um i was not a gifted person i i didn't come into the world as a super iq gifted uh, genius child i've been around a lot of people like that in my business in my life uh going through the backseat of course test at west point and then at graduate school, at, at test pilot school, as an astronaut, I've been around some people who were born geniuses and were were just endowed with incredible talents from the get-go. I wasn't one of those, so tenacity was what distinguished me uh, and allowed me to get to some of these some of these goals. To graduate from West Point, to graduate from from uh, graduate school to get into test pilot school, and graduate from that and uh, pursue the astronaut uh, career. And that tenacity, I can look back now with 2020 hindsight and realize that my mom and my dad uh, were, were significant, overwhelmingly significant in teaching me what tenacity is all about, staying focused uh, on a goal in spite of adversity. And their adversity of course was dealing with polio um that served me as i said very well in life um, now judy uh i walked into the astronaut office in 1978 as a certified grade a quality one or whatever quality 10 uh male sexist day uh, i was raised that away as far as catholicism went to 12 years of catholic school and um and that was the most sexist religion in the 1950s and 60s when I was going to school. And uh, so I walked into that, and then I went to West Point, no women there, graduated into the flying community at the Air Force, no, no women there. And uh, so I really had never worked professionally with women until I got to NASA, age 32, in 1978. And as I say in the book, I was a male sexist, no doubt about it. And Judy Resnick and the other women, uh, really opened my eyes to the fact that hey, uh, just gender does not distinguish people and their ability to get a job done. Neither does color. Now I, I never had a problem with that. My parents were great in that regard. I never harbored any type of uh, prejudices uh, with color, religion, things like that. But certainly, gender, I, I certainly did, and um, it, uh, it was uh, Judy certainly helped dispel that. That since uh, training with her on a, on a flight, on, on 41D, seeing her in, in, in operation up there on the, uh, on Discovery in orbit, uh, really opened my eyes to how talented uh, people are, and, it, and it's not gender, gender specific. So that, and that served me well through the rest of my life too, is, is learning those lessons. I'm a big, big believer in empowerment now. I mean, everybody, that's what makes this country great, is that we have empowered our population. And are continuing to try to get full empowerment in our population, and that's why the United States of America is such a, a, a great, great uh, country, is because we do that with our population. And like I said, I wasn't that person back in 1978, and, and Judy certainly helped help convert me. Okay, I'll shut up on that question.
3: Okay, well, thank you. My second part of that question is more about your wife, Donna. One of my favorite parts of your book is the description. Well. Really, how, you know, the narrative of Donna in a lot of ways, how she had a, probably a couple of cardiacs on the um, launch control roof a couple of times, and really just how difficult it was while well, she was raising three young kids. You were never home, the pressures on her, and eventually one day you got to a point where you thought the Air Force was going to recognize. Sort of basically all the years, all the hard work, all the sacrifice, and Donna was going to be a part of that. You do a marvelous job with this part of the book, how you described your colleague on the Navy side of the Pentagon and the wonderful spread they put out, just the you know the heroes welcome, and that you got to see all that, and then before you trooped down to the Air Force side of the building, and you were nothing more than just a blip on the schedule. I mean the way you described that, it was some of the greatest writing I've ever read. And I guess I would just really want to ask if, you know, now that years have passed, how does Donna reflect upon all of this now? I mean, you were part of something amazing, incredible. And she sacrificed for it. How does she, how would she talk about it today?
4: Well, I think she said it once. I think it kind of captivates it. She said, "says uh, I think if I get this right, she says uh hold on a second she's right here i'm going to make sure i'm quoting it right what did you say about about uh you wouldn't give a million dollars that's right she said i wouldn't trade the experiences for millions of dollars but i wouldn't pay a dime to do it again and i think that probably probably uh says it says about right the memories are incredible looking back on it uh being a part of it i think she uh I know she she feels blessed and privileged to have been part about it part of it, but also it was incredibly stressful for her and um, and that's why the second part of that expression, I wouldn't give a time to do it again is is in there. you know that, uh, knowing, knowing what it entailed, it, it certainly did uh, hammer her and, and, uh, and put a few gray hairs on her head.
0: Now first off, let me just say I forgot to mention this before, but your book was the first face related book that I ever read. And by far, is still the best space-related book that I have ever read, so...
4: Is it the only space-related book you've
0: ever read? <laughs> no, it is not. Okay. It's definitely not the only I've ever read.
4: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: You're welcome. Now, the thing that struck me the most that I found probably the funniest was the beginning of the book. To start off lying on the medical examination table, what made you decide to start the book... In that sense.
4: Well, I once, uh, and I don't know where I read it, a long time ago, somewhere about writing. They say you have to capture your audience in the first sentence. So, I, I, um, you know, have. I think the first sentence is, "I was naked." <laughs> I figured that's going to trap people. By the way, on that, on that, I initially, when I submitted that book to an agent for consideration. I began it with Challenger. I didn't think anybody would really be all that fired up to start out with my life story. I didn't. I thought maybe I could fit parts of that in as I went through the program, but I really thought the, the uh, seminal moment in my life as an astronaut was Challenger, since four of my cl- astronaut classmates were killed on that, and Judy Resnick, who her and I shared a flight on a rookie mission together, was killed on that. So I thought Challenger would be the way to begin. And that's what when I submitted it to her, I had Challenger up front. And then uh, I I forget exactly the transition, but then uh, went into the rest of it and developed my story later on in it. Well, this agent in New York, Faith Hamlin, uh, wrote back to me and says, hey, you really need to put your life story up front. Uh, Put Challenger where it happened in your life, but put your life story up front. I was very skeptical of that. I, I really did did think that um, people weren't going to really be all that interested in in my life story, and uh, and would be more interested in I, I shouldn't say wouldn't be interested in the life story. Wouldn't be interested in the early part of it. Would be more interested in the in the part of it, since I was an astronaut. So uh, I was skeptical, but I changed it and. Uh, from what I get feedback, I get from people who've read the book, and from you folks, obviously too, it it sounds like that agent knew what she was talking about. So I moved the life story up front.
0: Definitely, because I can tell you that opening definitely captured my attention.
4: <laughs> well, I tell you, when you're laying on that table doing stuff like that to yourself, it captures your attention. <laughs>
1: It, the the agent was was very wise it 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 kind of you you were talking about your early days and so on and there was a lot over there that I could relate to again I grew up you know went to catholic school myself and uh, your father and my father also had apparently the same favorite expletive. <laughs> I think yeah. it was a gen- I think it was a generational thing, and uh, you know it, so and, and a lot of what you were going through, being you know the, the chucklehead at that age. I mean, shoot, I relate related to it all because shoot, I was a chucklehead at that age. So uh, you know it was it was a it was a wise uh, your, your your literary agent was was wise in, in doing that because again I think in 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 this this book you know. Yes, indeed. It's it's a it's an extraordinary story of an extraordinary experience, but also it's it's a lot of things too in there that I think a lot of you know slice of life stories in there too that people can relate to, and I think that's why the book grabs grabs people so much.
4: Well, I, I would uh, like I agree with you. I think the uh, Faith Hamlin, uh, the agent, was uh, very wise on that, and I have certainly gotten a lot of feedback that supports that. Support have that, uh, people have written in and said they really enjoyed the. Peek into my life, into my wife's life, into my parents' life, uh, and so she was right.
1: To get back to the shuttle for a moment, um, on STS-27, your the the second flight you had, which was a, a military flight, uh, Atlantis got dinged up up front, didn't she? It
4: did. And,
1: yeah, and and you do you think that? There wouldn't be, you know, given, you know, what's, what's happened with Columbia and so on. You, you, what, what do you think the reaction of something like that happening in flight would have been, like say on a on on a flight in 2008, as opposed to uh, when you flew? Uh,
4: well, let me explain for the listeners here what we're talking about. Uh, on flight 27, SPS 27, which is the second flight after Challenger, uh, during ascent, the tip of the right side solid rocket booster. Now, this wasn't foam off the gas tank. This was hard, uh, 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 an ablative material that covers the very tip of the solid rocket boosters. That failed on the right booster, broke off, and shotgunned the right side of the orbiter, the heat tiles, uh, with the debris. And we didn't see it didn't feel it going up. The ground saw it. They called us after we got on orbit, asked us to to do a uh, survey with the robot arm. And uh, I was operating that. And we leaned that over. It has a camera on the end of it. And we could see uh, that we had taken severe damage. And in fact, we could see that one tile had been completely blasted free. And this was in a very high temperature part of reentry. It was up in the uh, right uh, nose, uh, wing area, the wing uh, where the fuselage blends into the wing and uh, and that right nose area. And that's an area that sees very high temperatures. Um, so we were very concerned with what we were seeing. Uh, I think nowadays, uh, or certainly post-Columbia, if they saw that type of a damage, the crew would be um, would be warehoused over at the International Space Station awaiting rescue. They wouldn't attempt to re-entry with, the, with that type of damage. Um, it, it just so happened that the damage uh, was in an area where it was the ceramic tiles and not the carbon panels. It was the carbon panel that was damaged for Columbia. Those things can't take a licking and keep on ticking. You get a hole in that carbon panel and it's right into the guts of the vehicle and you know, as we saw with Columbia, it's going to be catastrophic and, uh, and deadly. We, our hit was on the ceramic tiles and those can take a hit and keep on ticking, uh, as we proved on reentry. We, we didn't particularly want to prove it, but we did. But I, I don't think there's uh, any question in my mind that if they saw damage like that now, that that vehicle would not attempt reentry. That either a rescue would be mounted from the ground or the crew would wait out rescue on the International Space Station. Uh, we had n- neither of those options on our flight. Uh, a rescue might I, I don't remember how close to launch a following vehicle was, but that would have been our only if we didn't have a space station on sts 27 um, But it, it was a certainly a very, very near miss. But I look at the photos now and realize how close to the carbon panels that covered the very tip of the nose of the orbiter. It started just after those carbon panels. The damage did and it stopped just forward of the carbon panels on the wing. Had any of those carbon panels been hit, we wouldn't be having this interview because we would have been the first Columbia. We would have burned up on re-entry. Wow. Uh,
1: yeah, if I remember, uh, if I recall in the book, um, Hoot Gibson wasn't exactly too happy either with the situation. No, no. Uh,
4: and, and I should explain on that. We, call, we saw it we were very concerned about what we were seeing. It just so happened that it was a uh, Defense Department mission. And the last, uh, the military did not want to have any downlink from the vehicle to the ground uh, because of the classification of the payload. They didn't want, by mistake, some, some video of the payload being sent to the ground. So the video that ultimately got to the mission control center was not what we were seeing it went through some type of a slow scan uh, the dod uh censored it to make sure it was okay and it went through uh, some processes but anyway what they were getting wasn't what we were seeing and that's why they uh, mission control kept basically saying hey this is within the databases we've seen on damage on prior missions it's not a big deal don't worry about it and to us it looked like a very big deal and Luke Gibson was uh, was concerned and was was on the phone uh, or on the radio talking to Mission Control and saying, hey, this looks really serious. And they kept saying, no, it's okay. You know, it's okay. So uh, we, weren't, we weren't convinced, but we thought they were seeing what we were seeing. And they're so good. Mission Control is such a great uh, team. You tend to be biased toward believing, you know, hey, these guys know what they're doing so we were re-entered, but when we landed and everybody went out and saw the damage on that vehicle they were shocked uh, it, they ultimately changed out nearly 800 heat tiles that were so severely damaged wow. uh, before they could launch it on, launch it again wow
0: um, I have a question along those lines in terms of the actual uh, inspection of the arm in general with, the, uh, with inspection of the shuttle with the arm because I know that uh, you worked a lot in terms of the robotics with the robotic arm Uh, Where I work, we have, uh, at the Challenger Centers actually, um, we have mini robotic arms and the kids try to use it like video games and they're jamming the controls all over the place. What would the difference be, besides the million dollar payload at the end, would be the difference you think between trying to operate the robotic arm and trying to play one of today's video games?
4: Well, I don't play the video games, so I
0: really can't comment on that. But But based uh, on what you have, what's the difficulty level of trying to use the arm?
4: Well, when you go through thousands of hours of training, it's not difficult at all to get up there and use it. I mean, it's like anything else. When you're trained, it becomes uh, second nature. Um, I think it's fairly intuitive. Uh, It's like a human arm. Uh, It has a shoulder joint that can lift up and down, and it can move left and right. It has an elbow joint that just moves in one direction. Obviously our elbow bends and that's what it does on the, uh, on the robot arm. And then it has a wrist joint that can do yaw. I mean, our wrists can move left and right. They can move up and down and they can roll left and right. Uh, excuse me. Uh, clockwise and counterclockwise. So, um, that's the way the arm is built. And so I, I found it very intu- intuitive. Uh, there's a camera on the end so you can see. Uh, where you're steering it to, and um, I, I mean, from the very beginning, I thought it was it was very intuitive. And after training for, I said thousands, probably more like hundreds of hours on the robot arm, uh, it begins. It gets to be second nature being able to guide it toward a uh, uh, end effector. They call it uh, the spike. Let's see, yeah, that's uh, the grapple fixture. I'm sorry to bring the end effector of the arm over the grapple fixture and, and snare it. Uh,
1: I found to be very easy yeah, up in space. I'm going to bring you back to uh, to 41D there for a minute. Um, as far as ascent is concerned, we've talked to a couple of uh, former astronauts that have uh, had an ascent in the in the mid deck, but I, I don't re- recall if we've ever had one that, that's. Well, you were MS1 on that flight, and what what's what's ascent like on on, on the flight deck?
4: <laughs> well, I didn't like the flight deck uh, at all. I uh, I was on sts 36. I was on the uh, flight. I'm sorry, on the uh, mid deck. You said the flight deck. Yeah. Right. I, maybe, did I? Did you want to know what it was like on the flight deck or the mid deck?
1: The flight deck, because the mid deck looks like it could be a bear. All you do, you, I mean, all you're doing is just look at, looking at a set of lockers, and you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs for two hours right, until, until right. the candle lights.
4: Right. Yeah. That I didn't. I'm sorry. I did not like the mid deck. The flight deck I loved. You had windows. Uh, but yeah, on the flight deck, uh, ascent, I was sitting in that in that one position behind the uh, pilot on the right right side, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you don't have a view of the Earth as you're going up. A lot of people assume you'd be looking out the window, seeing the Earth go, uh, recede behind you. You don't. Even the pilots don't have that initially because the nose is tilted so high. Uh, you don't have the Earth in sight until late in the in the uh, orbit injection when the nose tilts over to a more horizontal position. But even then, the mission specialists in the back uh, can't see the Earth. We're uh, just the windows are too far forward. Uh, so you're basically looking at just black sky as you're, well, we started out in daylight and see clouds and blue sky, and then rapidly, uh, you zoom up and the sky gets black, goes to deep, deep indigo and goes black very quickly. Within two minutes, you're looking into a sky that's pitch black, uh, and it's that way all the way to, to orbit for a mission specialist. So the next time I saw the earth was when I unstrapped and floated up. Uh, And now we're probably at about 100 miles, headed to 250 miles or so, posting up there. And that was my first view of the Earth, uh, was unstrapping. So the last view I had of the Earth was standing on the gantry before I got into the cockpit. And that gantry is about 200 feet above the Earth. And the next time I saw the Earth, a couple hours later, was, as I said, we were probably about 100 miles up, headed higher. And it was, well, again... Words are hard to capture what the human eye can see. You float up, you see this incredibly black, black space with the uh, blue of the ocean of the Atlantic and the white of the clouds. Black, white, and blue, those are the predominant colors when you look out the window uh, on any shuttle flight. Um, obviously the Earth is mostly mostly water, so you're seeing a lot of blue and got clouds covering it and then the black of space. And that was, I'll, again, never forget the very first view I had out that window at the earth and it, it just uh, put my heart in my throat and, and accelerated it to Mach 10 it was incredible Wow
1: it, do you have a specific favorite moment from that flight or
4: that was it really I think I, think, I, I seriously I think if you ask any astronaut uh, what moment is most vivid it has to be the very first time you look out that window at earth um, now maybe the pilots because they do get some glances of it uh, as they're as they're headed up i mean they can twist around and, and get at least a little look at it as they're headed up uh, but for mission specialists no i mean you, you're just looking at black sky until the engines quit and then you unstrap and now you see it and you and you see this dramatic curvature of the earth we don't see it as a ball and that's something people need to understand too most people think Astronauts see it as a, as a ball, as a complete disk because of the Apollo photos. But those were taken tens of thousands of miles from Earth. You know, we're up at 100, 200 miles, so uh, the Earth is hugely close. It fills the windows. We can see that it's curved, but we can't see it as a ball because we're, we're so, so close to it. And um, it's just, um, again... Uh, soul-stirring is probably the best way to do it. It, it, the, the, it. it just touches you in the deepest recesses of your soul. Uh, how incredibly beautiful uh, seeing the black of space, the curvature of the earth set against it with that blue and white of the ocean and the in the clouds.
1: Gina, do you, you have one more question, right? Correct?
3: Yeah, I just have a few more quick questions. Mike, tell us about the TFNGs, the 35... 35- <laughs>
4: Yeah, well,
3: that was... uh. You know, 1978, you guys were the first class of space shuttle astronauts. You wrote history and so many things. First female American astronaut, Sally Ride, first African-American in space, Guy Bluford. Uh, you know, it's 2010. Do you guys, like, get together and have barbecues these days? Or, you know, you, you were such a close group of training partners and did so much together media wise training wise you know and a big part of the Challenger accident touched all of you so where do you guys um where do you guys stand today as a, a group or a social group or
4: do you not, not really not, not uh, um, first of all for the listeners out there TFNG we were 35 astronauts selected in 1978 so the term TFNG uh Stands for 35 New Guys, although anybody who has ever been in the military will know what an FNG is. So we were the, the FNGs, and I'll leave it at that. But it's, a, it's a,
0: You can read op- the book to figure out what it is.
4: <laughs> it's an obscene military term, but we. we it's Basically, it's a play on that acronym of FNG. We called ourselves the TFNGs for 35 New Guys, but it does stand for something else, and you can read in the book to decipher, the, decipher that. Uh, so that's where that term came came, came back came out. Um, but as far first of all, I, I think uh, I I don't want to characterize that group as a uh, as the musketeers, uh, you know, all for one, one for all, and all this uh, um, you know uh, goodwill and uh, never a crossword said between anybody. We all got along. That would be absolutely false. Uh, you throw 35 people, particularly high achieving, very competitive people together. Uh, you're going to have uh, conflicts, you're going to have frictions, and I certainly saw that, experienced it. Uh, there were people there that you would die to basically be part of their team and to support them, and uh, you, know, you really felt a very close affinity to them. And then there were people you'd sit there and pray that you never, ever got slammed into a cockpit of a shuttle for a week or two with because you're convinced you would kill them or or kill yourself, uh, so it, it you know you got to understand. I mean, there's 35 people, and uh, you know you're going to have the whole gamut of personalities and frictions and conflicts and likes and dislikes. it uh, since um, that uh, you know we're all retired now, the TFNGs are. And um, uh, do we have reunions? Yeah, we had a 25th reunion uh, years ago. Uh, most people, they're not all, but most were. I'm sure we'll have reunions in the future. They probably won't include everybody. Uh, some people uh, participate in those things, some don't. Uh, I I wouldn't uh, characterize us as uh, you know we don't get together every year. Uh, I see a handful of astronauts every year, and I think most astronauts would be the same, go into various functions that have astronauts at But we don't uh, have uh, yearly type of functions where we're all together having barbecue. So I'll shut up there on that. I think I probably answered it for you.
3: Yes, you did. And um, just another question. Do you think NASA was a better organization after the Challenger accident? And if you agree with that, do you think it even improved more after the Columbia accident?
4: Yes, I agree. I I, I do believe that. I I absolutely believe NASA was a a better organization after Challenger. Columbia occurred 17 years later, and I think one of the contributing factors to that was the corporate memory loss over 17 years. Uh, that, uh, you know, the lessons learned from Challenger faded, people moved out. Uh, I often wonder how many people that were working that foam problem off the gas tank weren't there for the o ring problem with Challenger because there were a lot of similarities on how those things were handled and how they ultimately resulted in in uh, the disasters that killed seven astronauts on each of those uh, Challenger and Columbia. Um, so the, the trick is in any organization is making sure that corporate memory doesn't fade that people do remember the lessons that were learned from past tragedies so they're not repeated in the future. And I think uh, I think definitely NASA improved significantly after Challenger obviously it took a huge hit with Columbia uh, but then after that uh, I think it improved again. I have a great uh, sense that the NASA current days is very, very good uh, under, well, well, with Charlie Bolden in the administrator position and uh, Michael Coates, who's the JSC administrator, he, he was a co-pilot on STS 41 d and one of the TFNGs. I um, have great respect for him. Uh, and there were some other people that were in key uh, uh, key positions within NASA that I, had, I, I held them in great regard. So... Um, I feel like it's a, it's a better organization, although, again, no organization. People are people, and you got to make sure you you continually remember those lessons in the past so they're not repeated in the future.
1: Mark, do you have anything else? Or?
2: Sure do. Mike, I was thrilled when I looked at the uh, mission insignia for 41D to see the uh, solar array uh, extended out of the payload bay. As you've watched the shuttle mature, from when you started through your retirement and today, uh, I look at that that solar array experiment that flew on 41D, and I, I can't help but think about it being an ancestor to the uh, solar arrays on the ISS today. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on the uh, importance of the research and development, the science, the the many, many little uh, missions and and experiments that have been done on the shuttle.
4: Uh, There's no question what you said. That is absolute fact, that the uh, ISS solar panels, uh, the grandfather of those was that STS-41 mission. Um, We had math simulators for it, but it was was, uh, showing how you could uh, package that into a very small box, extended it out 150 feet or whatever it was, and uh, that technology has served the ISS very, very well. And that's what science and engineering is, is a lot of people who aren't involved in science and engineering don't realize it's such an iterative process. You know, I mean, everybody just does a little bit. It all adds up over time to to these great breakthroughs. Um, And I think uh, someday there will be spas in space. There will be hotels in space. Now, this is generations in the future, many, many generations. But I believe technology will continue to advance. Uh, that, it, that it'll get cheaper, that people will have access to space like they do right now to flying across the country in airplanes, uh, and people will look back and see the shuttle and these earlier programs as we see the Wright brothers in the, in the 1920s with airplanes, um, you know, just very archaic and very quaint, and, um, But that's how it happens in the engineering and science world. You start with these baby steps, and they ultimately lead to to great things. And like I said, these hotels and spas in space, uh, they they will be grandfathered in the things that were done in the very early space program, including uh, the space shuttle program. In fact, I think someday you'll see a domed, pressurized dome on the moon where Neil Armstrong's footprint is, and people will fly on field trips up there to... uh, well, maybe not field trips, but like we go to the Grand Canyon now, people fly up there, uh, go there, it'll be a World Heritage Site where people will take a tour and pressurize Dome and see Neil Armstrong's Cliff If we don't blow ourselves up on this planet between now and then, but um, I think that eventually as technology advances, we will get there. But again, many generations in the future. In fact, I'll continue on this vein, and I often thought when people ask me to to do that, to, um, when will we have, you know, hotels in space? When will we have uh, people just being able to ride a uh, maybe a suborbital rocket ship from Atlanta to Australia in an hour, things like that? And uh, you know, I, my gut is it's thousands or hundreds of years in the future for stuff like that, maybe even more. And then I think if you had been standing on Kitty Hawk and uh, saw the Wright brothers' plane peter off and fly for a couple seconds for 120 feet and settle down in the sand. And now I look at you and say, okay, you just saw that flight. And ask the question, when are we going to have aluminum-tubed winged vehicles flying at 600 miles an hour, carrying 300 passengers across the Atlantic? What would your answer have been after your only experiences now is seeing the Wright brothers plane? I suspect many people would say a thousand years, some would say hundreds of years and others would say never, you know, because just beyond the realm of the human brain to, to, to wrap itself around the idea that technology could advance uh, to do that. And yet, what was it? it was 50 years or so from the time the Wright brothers uh, were flying their little crate to the time the first 707 was flying across the Atlantic. So very difficult to. Predict the future, and that was a very long-winded answer to your question. So I'll shut up there.
2: Great answer, I appreciate it. It's got us all thinking of how long we can hang on and maybe uh, <laughs> take that ride up to that domed uh, tourist trap on the moon.
4: Yeah, yeah. I, get, I guarantee it'll be just like Disneyland. It, you'll exit it into a gift shop. You know? <laughs> Guaranteed.
1: Uh, you, you'll get the T-shirt. Uh, you know,
4: I I saw Neil Armstrong's foot
1: uh, footprint. Huh? And all we got was this lousy T-shirt. Lousy T-shirt. <laughs> where do you think the the legacy of the shuttle program now that's ending is going to be? And what's your thoughts about the current condition of the, of the U.S. space program? And where would you see it, it going in the future? Well, it's a lot
4: of a lot of answers to answer the question. The legacy of the of the uh, shuttle program, I think, is going to be. Um, the ability of humans to work in space. I mean, the shuttle program really is the first program where we see with a robot arm, with a uh, spacewalking astronaut, uh, you're able to do these incredible things, uh, repairing Hubble Space Telescope, building an International Space Station. Uh, That's the legacy of the shuttle, is really capitalizing on human ability, uh, the ability to to uh, make uh, decisions uh, with tools in their hands and uh, correct things that maybe the engineers had wrong and to get it done, get the job done. That's the legacy of the shuttle. Uh, As far as the current or where we're headed in the immediate future, first of all, that is a big unknown. We got, as we speak here, two guaranteed shuttle flights remaining uh, planned and uh, a third most likely to happen next year. and after that, that's the end of the shuttle program. And uh, where we're headed from there is a big unknown because where the administration wants to take us is being uh, debated by the Congress. and so when people ask me where we're headed. Nobody can answer that question now and won't be able to until after the uh, elections and people come up with uh, the with decisions. I am personally not a fan of the NASA of the excuse me, of the uh, Obama administration's uh, plans. Of uh, giving, we had to cancel Constellation. It was underfunded. Uh, Constellation wasn't going to happen because it wasn't enough money. So, you know, there's, there's, you had no choice there but to cancel that. But, I don't like the idea of, after spending nine billion dollars on the Constellation program, basically walking away from that and then deciding to give the money, that was going into that program, to a, uh, oh, a, a pot of. Uh, of other rocket companies to develop uh, rockets and uh, capsules to be able to service the space station with American astronauts. I am definitely not a fan of that. First of all, I hear the term, giving the money to the private private companies. There are no private companies when it comes to orbit spaceflight. Uh, the money that goes to those folks uh, to develop those rockets and capsules. Uh, Is taxpayer money. Uh, There is nobody that's going to go out there and be able to form a company and sell stock and raise capital uh, with the premise that you're going to sell tickets and put people into orbit. It's just vastly more expensive uh, to get into orbit than it is to do what Virgin Galactic and Spaceship uh, Two is going to do, taking tourists up to 70 miles. It's a whole different uh, challenge. Challenges to get into orbit. Uh, so that's not going to happen in the private sector. It's always for the immediate future technology gets cheaper. It's going to, it's going to take taxpayer money. So, you know, I guess I have a hard time understanding if we take this taxpayer money and give it to several other companies, uh, Michael Griffin, I think said it best, all we're doing is changing the prime contractor from the, uh, constellation program. I don't see how that makes sense. I can't believe it's more efficient than, than, uh, what we were doing uh you know, with the uh with the constellation program developed in the Orion capsule and the Ares rocket. I, I just fail to see how that's gonna be uh, more efficient. And there's people who will argue with me and say this is the best way to go. Uh, but I I'm not a fan of it. And uh I can't remember what the last part of your question was. Uh just,
1: just one more thing. Uh is there what are you doing right now and is there anything you want to go ahead and uh and plug for any any current projects that you're working on and that you want to go ahead and give a shout-out to.
4: I would like like everybody that's listening to this to go out and buy my memoir, Riding Rockets. By the way, I do want to make a cautionary comment on Riding Rockets. It is not a children's book. So anybody that's listening to this, thinking of getting it for their 13-year-old son or daughter, I personally think would be inappropriate. You need to read it first and decide when it's age-appropriate. It is unlike any other astronaut book that's been written. It is definitely R rated in some places. So, uh, very, very mature in some places. So be, be forewarned. It's not a kid's book. In fact, as I tell some, I tell adults or some of my audiences that it may not be appropriate for some adults. Here's the cautionary comment that I, I do for writing rockets. I tell people if you like G rated, sanitized, politically correct memoirs, don't read mine, uh, that's, that's the best way I can put it. Um, but I, uh, as far as what I have done recently I, in July, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro uh, with my son. And when I talk to people, I, I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, actually, it's not public, it's corporate speaking. I do programs on teamwork and leadership for corporations. It's generally close to the public. That so Corporations are hiring me to go in and talk to their employees. But I have a part on courageous self-leadership, and uh, I'm a big believer in this. As I said earlier, uh, I wasn't an a- I'm not an astronaut, uh, didn't become an astronaut because I was born a genius. Uh, I was a super gifted person uh, that it was destiny that I would be an astronaut. That is not, not true. Tenacity played a huge role in making me an astronaut, goal-setting in tenacity. And, um, I, a year ago, uh, my son called me and said, dad, let's go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. You know, that was a year ago. So it would be this year. And I'm thinking Kilimanjaro, I mean, it's nice over 19,000 feet high. I'm going to be, six, <laughs> I'm going to be six weeks from Medicare. Uh, you know, I've done you know a lot of hiking, but that's a mile higher than I've ever been. And, uh, yeah, you know, I had my, I had severe doubts about it and I thought, well, why not? So I trained and trained, I did a lot of hiking and preparing for it, and uh, hiked it and had no problems. Got up there and, and it, uh, in July, July 23rd. Uh, my son and I summited Mount Kilimanjaro. And uh, again, talking to folks here is uh, don't ever underestimate your reserves. Uh, we have reserves that are a lot, lot deeper than than we think. And the, w- the way we find them is through challenges. And the analogy I use is mapping our performance envelope. We Test aircraft to map their performance, the edge of their performance envelope, how high they can fly, how fast, how many G's. But we have edges of our performance envelopes as parents, as spouses, as team members, and team leaders. And those edges are a lot further out than we think. And the way we find them is to challenge. So uh, never stop challenging yourself, folks. Um, don't don't hear hear have somebody suggest a goal and think, oh, there's no way I can do that. You don't know. You got to try. Set the goal and be tenacious in the pursuit of those goals. So, at any rate, that's um, I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with my son. Uh, I've climbed uh, there's 53 14,000 foot peaks above 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado, and I've climbed 26 of those all since age 60, wow. by the way. So uh, I'm chipping away on those as a as a challenge. Um, I'm uh Thinking about writing writing some more. Um, you know, that's that's. I'm so busy with my speaking programs, corporate speaking programs. Very difficult to find time to write. But I but I'm I'm gonna do my best to try to try to write something in the future, and uh, we'll see how that works out. But I guarantee that uh, I'm not gonna sit back and be a secondary person, and nobody should be. You know, make sure you do that. Set those goals and be tenacious in the pursuit
1: of them. Hope to have you back when you do get that uh, that new book out.
2: Okay. All right. <laughs>
1: Mike Lane thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to us tonight. We really do appreciate it. Uh, I guess that's that wraps up our show for this evening. Uh, Mark Radiman, indeed, thanks for coming on board to uh, enjoy the evening with us.
2: Wouldn't have wanted to miss this one. I hope everybody enjoys it.
1: Sawyer Rosenstein, thank you again so much for, uh, for uh, being our flight engineer for this uh, little mission here.
0: Not a problem. Hey, if uh, Mike Mullane gets to be MS-1, then I get to be TS-1. How's that?
1: <laughs> that sounds like a plan to me, Sawyer. And as always, Gina Hurley, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this tonight.
0: Absolutely. I
3: wouldn't have missed
1: this one. And again, thank you for uh, for downloading this particular episode of Talking Space and joining us uh, to, here to uh, listen to uh, uh, Colonel Mike Mullane. And uh, Sawyer, you want to go ahead and bang us out?
0: why not have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are